Welcome to the Ubernomics Strategy Podcast. I'm Barbara Gray, a former sell-side equity analyst and the author of Ubernomics, The Next Generation of Business Strategy. Today I'm speaking with Heather McGowan, who has a fascinating background. According to her LinkedIn profile, she's a catalyst, speaker, author, and doing innovation at the intersection of work and learning. Heather received her BFA in Industrial Design from Rhode Island School of Design, which is actually the alma mater of two of the three founders of Airbnb, and she has an MBA from Babson College. Heather's currently writing a book called The Great Unbundling, which speaks to the atomization and augmentation of work. I connected with Heather back in the summer of 2014 on LinkedIn, and we've collaborated together on a few articles. And if you've seen my Ubernomics strategy presentation, she's the genius behind some of the brilliant graphics. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Hey, Heather, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm honored to be uh, your podcast guest. Thank you. Okay, so let's get to it. So what inspired you to pursue a BFA in industrial design? Um, sure. I think it's important first to understand what uh, industrial design is. A lot of people think it's the design of factories. Um, for those who, want, who don't know what industrial design is, it is essentially product design, or at least that's what it was. Um, it's been defined as anything mass-produced, and it's become to mean anything, the design of anything, whether it's a product or service or experience, including the design of strategy, and increasingly the design of business models, and now even culture. Um, back when I was looking at my future as an 18-year-old, where I had few, you know, models in mind of what, what I might want to be in the future. I was interested in both behavior and creating new value. I didn't have those words for it then, but that's what it really was. I wanted to understand what needs people had and how they met them with products that existed or products that didn't. And I was most interested in when uh, product or service could delight them because it was a need they didn't know they had. Wow. So one of the uh, alumni of, of RISD, the Rhode Island School of Design, where you went is actually Brian Chesky, who's the founder of Airbnb. So how do you think that this design-led mindset has really contributed to the success of Airbnb and, and, and inspired him to, to, to create it? Yeah, it's not just Brian, actually. It was, it was Brian and Joe. Two of the three founders come from a design background, and specifically from an industrial design background, and specifically from a RISD industrial design background. And one of the things we're both products of the same, or all three of us are products of the same department. And, and one of the things they teach you at RISD is not so much to design a product, but to design the market or the market need. So hmm. you begin with questioning the question. And you continue to question the question until you really understand what the problem is. So where some places focus on the thing, we focus on the thinking. And I think that's what made them successful when Brian and Joe couldn't pay their rent to look around and say, okay, but why? But what if? But why? But what if? And I think that cycle leads to the creation of a lot of new value. There's actually an interesting um, TED Talk that Joe did. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it, calling Designing for Trust. And it talks... Oh, it's excellent. It's uh, It talks about how um, putting different fields of information in place in different ways, encouraging people to connect with each other with just the right amount of information to establish a sense of trust from two people who've never met each other before so that you would open up your home to them. Right. It's pretty fascinating. That's really cool because, that, I mean, that's one of the biggest hurdles that Airbnb faced initially was to get people to open their private homes yeah. to, to others. So... 
going back to yourself and, and sort of the idea of um, business with design. So you've got an MBA and the and the background in design. So really, how does that help you in your role as an innovation strategist in terms of how you look at companies and their problems, sort of help them see what others don't, and then also communicate your message in a visual sense? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think a lot of the problems we have with um, not only our economy, but with our education system, and they're linked, is we've been training people like it's still the Industrial Revolution, and we still mm -hmm. need people to go in and administer or operationalize things and not discover new value, create new value. And I think the combination of design and business just is that, just that. Um, the industrial design training I got from RISD, and it, it can take place in, it's not just the domain of designs. There, there are a lot of great liberal arts schools. There are a lot of great anthropologists out there who have that same, what's been called design thinking mindset. And it, it seeks to understand what the real problems are, what the real needs are, and what the real opportunities are by that cycling of questioning. And then the, the MBA, I did my MBA at Babson, which focuses on entrepreneurship, which they define as all forms of value creation, not just financial value. So with a combination of obsessing about the questioning, the question to find the real problem, and then a drive to create new value, that's a great combination. And then the propensity to think visually, which helps people understand complexity when mm -hmm. they're right in the middle of it, has been, those three together have been incredibly helpful to me. Right, because I know your LinkedIn articles, they've gotten incredible traction. And I think one of the main reasons is you have such compelling graphics in there that really tell the story whereas a lot of people like myself included I just write because I don't know how to sort of visually say what I'm say what I'm saying whereas you have you create this amazing graphic that really captures the whole essence essence of the message what I try to do is make it so that no matter what language you speak that you can understand the 75 percent of what I'm trying to say even if you can't read the words Mm -hmm. um, so that's that's my goal is you could either look at the pictures or you could read the words and you should be able to get about 75% of the content. You know, um, there was a there's a professor at I think it's UC San Diego that did a study over the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years and looking at the amount of information that's coming at us. And we all know with the Internet, with mobile phones, more is coming at us. In the 80s, we used to have the equivalent in terms of content of about 40 newspapers a day of content coming at us. In mm -hmm. 2007, that became 174. In 2008, um, 2014, that became 280. So we have this enormous amount of content coming at us every day. We're completely right. overloaded. So whenever people have the option to use a visual instead of a picture, they tend to, to gravitate toward it. I think that's why I've gotten traction. And Microsoft did a study and said that in 2000, we had an attention span of a sustained attention span of 12 seconds. Mm -hmm. In 2014, that became eight seconds. And wow. by by, by reference, a goldfish has a nine-second attention span. <laughs> so this influx of, conf, uh, of content has caused our attention spans to get very, very short. And if you look at a clock and it says, you know, the hands on the 10 and the hands on the, you know, the, the, the 5, you know it's mm -hmm. 10.05. You read that um, in simultaneous processing because your brain processes and stores information visually. Okay. But if you write those words out, each one of those letters has to be transferred into the symbol that it is that creates a picture in your mind. So if you look at the pictures on my articles or anybody else's who works visually, they literally are giving you those 10,000 words in a picture. And it allows people to process the information much more quickly. It's much easier on the individual. Wow. So are we starting to see other successful entrepreneurs and business people with design backgrounds? Because it seems like it gives you a huge competitive advantage in terms of like coming up with ideas and then also really, you know, communicating these ideas. Yeah, I think it's true. The, um, 
the uh, John Maeda, who was the former president of uh, RISD, is now a design partner at Kleiner Perkins. It's the first partner they've added who's comes from a design background. He's been looking at this for the last, I think, three years, looking at <laughs> the impact of design in entrepreneurship, the impact of design in venture-backed companies. I mean, Airbnb is certainly one that he looks at quite a bit, but there are many others. And he, I encourage you to look at his annual design uh, report. Wow. So when did you look start looking specifically at the sharing on-demand economy and start researching how this would impact the future of work? And, and was Airbnb one of the first companies that you looked at? Or Yeah, I think it was just like everybody else. It was sort of Airbnb and Uber, but I have been looking at TaskRabbit and some of the other things. I'd always used Craigslist, which was sort of on the periphery of that as well. And I was mm-hmm. also noticing all this stuff I was reading because I was working in higher at the time and still am in many regards looking at the rising gig economy, the number of people who are sort of unbundled from a traditional job. And then when um, the work intermediary platforms started to really come up like Upwork and Hourly Nerd that really mm-hmm. enabled um, the gig economy, I really saw it took off, t- take off. And it really changes not only work, but how you prepare people for work. So if you send people to, to college thinking they're going to get out and their starting salary is the main metric by, by which you do you determine the success of that college, you're missing the point entirely. You need to teach people to be their own brands, to be sort of me, Inc., you know, entrepreneurs of one, and they work across multiple work intermediary platforms. Right. And in the summer of 2014, it's interesting because that's when we connected, you published a series of four articles on LinkedIn about how jobs are over and the future is all about income generation. So what does this mean if if there's people from companies out there that are thinking, you know, how are they going to have to shift their mindset in terms of how they acquire, train and, and retain talent? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. And I think there's a, a couple of different answers to it. One is where we are and two is where we're going. And we have to acknowledge where we've been is not where we're going back to. So if you look at like an Escher print, you know, the those things where there's a fish and then over a series of frames, it becomes a bird and flies mm-hmm. off the page. Yeah. We're sort of smack in the middle of that. And everybody's wanting to go back to be the fish instead of wanting to go <laughs> be the bird. And I'm a fan of let's go figure out how to be the bird because the old way of work just doesn't work anymore. We don't have to. Two things have happened. What's ha- our, our work has been broken, broken apart. And so anything that is... Um, a discrete function, so a single job you can contain and define, can be done anywhere around the world, including in places where the rates are and cost of living are lower. We call this the atomization of work. Work has been broken up, work's been unbundled and broken up into atoms. Okay. The other thing that's happening, and it's just we're just starting to see the beginning of it, we're probably maybe 20% into it, is the augmentation of work. Mm-hmm. Have you, I don't know if you've gotten any emails from somebody and you realize after you've emailed them a couple of times, you're actually uh, corresponding with artificial intelligence. Because I, I had that. Yeah. Somebody sent me someone and I was like responding. I'm like, oh, this person's nice. I was going to say, have a nice day. And then he told me afterwards. And I'm like, okay, I feel really stupid. I yeah. did a series of experiments with that with people I was working with. I didn't tell them. I just said, I hired this person to help me out with some of my scheduling. They all interacted, socialized. You know, it had normal course. And then I said, you know, guys, we're working with software. This is why we need to think differently. It was for a bunch of faculty. I wanted them to understand it. And I've since changed my signature line on my iPhone to say sent from a human. Because I think we might have to make that distinction in the future. So anything that's mentally routine or predictable, the stuff that's been atomized can Mm -hmm. also be augmented or automated. 
And so we're going to see a massive shift in what we do in terms of work and, and, and things like design, creativity, ethics are going to be increasingly important over things that are certainty-based. Um, there's an Oxford study that says 47% of our current jobs will no longer exist by the end of this century. And we are not prepared for this reality. Right. No, it's, it's scary because I'm trying to think of, because my, my boys are three and five, and, and I have no clue about what they're going to be when they grow up. And yep. it's, it's, it's quite, it's a bit frightening, actually. What? So actually, going to that, so that's all what you were talking about, the atomization of work and the augmentation of work. That's all what you're talking about in your new book that you're writing yes. um, called The Great Unbundling, or that's right. the, the title you told me then. So yeah. what are the other insights you can share? Because I I'm, I'm find it completely fascinating, these, this, these two ideas. Well, my co-author and I, Chris Shipley, are suggesting that work um, companies become work platforms. And not in a way that pushes labor to necessarily the lowest cost, which is where we're at right now. What we've done right, right now is we've kept companies in place and we've shed large portions of it to atomize that work, to basically turn talent into a cost to contain instead of an asset to develop. Mm -hmm. And that works when your core business model, what you're doing, doesn't really change. You can job out the operational and discrete functions of that. But when you need to constantly look at changing and adapting, you, you can't let that knowledge management go out the door every day and be anywhere around the globe and nobody really having control over it. Right. So we have this, this concept in mind of a work intermediary platform that a company becomes with sockets, just different ways people can engage. And it sort of takes on... Um, Reid Hoffman's tours of duty idea of you know mm -hmm. the transitional transitional work um, transformational worker the rotational worker and the foundational worker and adds a whole bunch more types so you may engage in a company but you're engaging that company not just to be a producer but also to help the company collectively learn because as John Hagel says you know success in the future is not going to be about scalable efficiency but scalable learning mm -hmm. so we have to think about new ways of engaging and developing talent that may, may be there for three years, five years, seven years. Other people may be there for 18 months. So there'll be different types of tours with different types of roles. But we have to think of the, the, the workplace as like a, a giant Lego board that people snap in and off of. Right. And, you know, LinkedIn, they're launching LinkedIn Profinder for consultants, probably yeah. like, like yourself and, and myself, to, to connect with companies and then be able to transact on their platform. Do you see them playing a role in this, in this new thing? Or... Is there something else that's going to evolve? I think it. I think they could, but we 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 feel like there's sort of three or four kind of realms that need to be figured out. So you've got uh, what everybody's talked about is the social safety net, because that's the most obvious thing that's gone away in this atomization or gig economy. Is mm -hmm. you don't no longer have any coverage if you're not working, you're not making any money. So we need to figure that out from a policy probably standpoint, some sort of a way to help people be more experimental and and more entrepreneurial. Other pieces of it are social signaling, and this is where I think LinkedIn could play. Like it, you and I were just talking about as a consultant, the importance of having a book. Well, that's your tether. That's your social signal. You right. know, Barb wrote that book, or, or mm -hmm. it becomes the replacement for Barb was VP at that company, where the title and the brand of the company become a signal to your uh, to your unit of value. Interesting. We, ha we haven't replaced that reputation as a currency yet. For the people who don't have a title or a brand company, there's only some, not everybody's going to be a thought leader to the level where people are going to know who they are. Mm -hmm. So we're going to need to have some way of replacing that repetition currency. And then the third piece of it, and some of it's going to happen within the company, is social structures. Like how do you, the, if you're working at a company, if 
Barb, if you and I were working in a company and we could be on different projects or different divisions, we might run into each other by the coffee pot or the or the water right. cooler. We may start talking about something. And because we have so much tacit knowledge about the company, we may discover something new that's really important either for both of us individually or the company. And that's not happening if things are being done in these sort of discrete and siloed ways. So we need a new way to develop those social structures which are going to be really important for learning. Wow, that's that's really fascinating. So in terms of sort of from a learning perspective, you've also written about how we're starting to see a shift from expertise to agility yep. and from storing to streaming knowledge. Can you talk more in depth about this and then how it also relates to what you're talking about in your book? Yeah, I mean, I, I say to people, like, if you can take out Siri and Siri can answer the question, I'm not sure we need to teach it anymore. <laughs> That's what my five-year-old, he goes on to the iPhone and he asks Siri questions. Yeah, I mean, if you look at many of our educational institutions, certainly mm -hmm. at the K-12 when we're testing all these certainty things as opposed to discovery things, and then in many of our higher ed institutions that are still myopically focused on a starting salary as if it's the predictor for lifelong success, we need to teach the ability to, as Avalon Toffler said, learn, unlearn, and relearn as rapidly as possible. And that's what's essentially called learning agility or having an agile mindset. And that focus on I am A, when that mm -hmm. A doesn't exist anymore, what do you do? When your work right. is being, so we need to shift our focus from, I, I think it needs to be a shift away from education as it's been narrowly defined. Because mm -hmm. when you say education, you say someone's educated as an end state to developing learning agility, which you develop more and more. So it's a beginner's mindset as opposed to achieving mastery as an end state, but a constant beginner's mindset. Yeah. And does this go back to like to kindergarten or where does this sort of this shift in the educational process start? Because my, my son's starting kindergarten in September and, you know, is he going to be going in the old, you know, the old economy system and when will it sort of shift to the new? Um, I think it's going to shift when we have a crisis, unfortunately. But if you look at the founders of um, Google, Wikipedia, and Amazon, they all went to Montessori schools. And I don't think that's a mistake. I think that hmm. sort of education that teaches you to constant state of inquiry and discovery and building and testing, it is what they call design thinking as sort of but it's not really fair to for design to grab it all as their own. And there are also a lot of designers who are not good design thinkers. There are a lot of anthropologists that are, and a lot of people who study liberal arts. But it's that sort of constant state of discovery that right. I think um, needs to become central. So when you're talking about in your book about you know the atomization and the augmentation of work, what implications will this have for employees? Like a lot of people that are listening to this, you know, work at companies. So what does this mean for them? I would say if you've been in, in many instances, if you've been in your job for more than three years and your job hasn't changed, mm -hmm. I would start looking around because your job's going to change and either you're not ready for it or you're not going to be a part of it. Right. So we, there's no standing on your heels anymore. You've got to be on the balls of your feet. You've got to be learning something new every day. The founder of Udacity said we need to think about education or learning like a toothbrush, something we do twice a day for at least five minutes. We wow. have to be in a constant state of thinking, okay, what's my next 18 months going to look like? What job? Think about your job in, in six to 18 month increments of mm -hmm. learning, contributing, phasing out, moving to the next learning, contributing, phasing out. Right. And so what does this mean for company culture? Because a lot of companies are still sort of, you know, of the competitive, closed um, mindset. Do they have to shift to being more collaborative, more open? 
Yeah. Is that sort of the future? I think so. I think companies are going to become open innovation platforms. I think companies that, that, that sort of lock down and, and fight internally. Actually, I think that, you know, you brought up culture. I think culture is going to become sort of the new killer app. How do you define, create a culture of learning? How do you create a culture of collaboration? How do you create a culture that constantly encourages its people to um, disrupt itself, essentially? Right. And actually on that, it's interesting because you just started working with Hyperloop in that capacity. Yeah, they, they had a bit. Yeah, they had read some of the things that, that you mentioned and they were looking um, and they came to me and said that they're looking to try to figure out um, the particular first I should say the particular Hyperloop group that I'm working with is Hyperloop Transportation Technologies. Mm-hmm. And um, what they've done is they started as a jump starter, which is like a Kickstarter campaign. When Elon Musk put the white paper out there, they put theirs uh, they put it on their funding site, and the reaction was overwhelming. So they started, they raised some funds, but mostly they had a lot of people who wanted to contribute. And they said, well, what if we just did it as a massive open innovation? Not open innovation, it's um, crowdsourcing. So it's now, it's um, once you sign up, you're sort of under the tent. So it's not open, totally open IP. Um, what if we had everybody contribute 10 to 20 hours a week, depending on, you know, they have 40 different companies involved and they have 500 people contributing in all these agile teams. And they said, what if that, that's how we want to approach it. We don't, we think it's a new, the fifth mode of transport, but it also needs to be a new mode of education and learning within a company. And they were looking for someone to help them codify. What does that culture mean? What, what's, what's our purpose and what are our principles of practice that make it, make us, um, you know, uh, walk the talk. That is fascinating. That's really cool. Okay, so let's uh, let's wrap it up here. So, what's the uh, status of your book, and when's it coming out? When can I read it? Um, I don't know the answer to that. Um, we have it. We have a pretty. I'd say we're about halfway done with it. Um, I have to ask Chris when it's coming out. She's more in charge of that. But um, it's it's gotten a lot of interest. I was just talking to a lawyer this weekend. I started describing an employment lawyer, and I started describing it to him, and he's like, "Can I get a copy of that now?" It's sort of, it's, it's, it's timely. So we hope to get it out very soon. That's great. And last, how can people reach you if they want to, if they want to get a hold of you? Um, my LinkedIn network is open. So just uh, click on that and send me a note and tell me how you met me or why you want to talk to me. That's probably the easiest. Um, you can find me on Twitter and, and stuff like that. But I think that uh, LinkedIn might be the best way to be in touch with me. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much, Heather. It was a, it was a real pleasure to talk with you. And, and thank you so much for sharing all your incredible insights. Likewise. Thanks so much. Okay. okay bye-bye. bye-bye. Hey, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Ubernomics Strategy Podcast. If you're not already a member and you'd like to join me and other professionals in exploring the emerging white space of corporate collaboration I call Ubernomics, the next generation of business strategy, you're welcome to join my Ubernomics Strategy Group at bradycap.com. That's B-R-A-D-Y cap.com. And if you're interested in connecting directly with me, you can email me at barb at bradycap.com. Again, that's barb, B-A-R-B, at bradycap.com. Thanks for listening.